Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, March 8th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Averate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and on social media via Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Al Fournier, with whom I will be discussing his poem, Reaped, and my poem, Not Yet. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Phoenix metro area during the week of March 9th. Now, since the coronavirus is forcing many events to cancel, be sure to double check that they're still on before you go. On Monday, March 9th from 6 to 7.45 p.m., Christy White and the Arizona State Poetry Society will be hosting their Mustang Poets Open Reading and Discussion at the Mustang Library at 10101 North 90th Street in Scottsdale. From 6 to 8 p.m., Joy Young will be hosting the sixth of their A-part from page to stage exploring spoken word workshop at the Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North 3rd Street in Phoenix. From 6.30 to 8.30, Patty will be hosting her monthly Poetry Roundtable Workshop at Changing Hands Bookstore, which is at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From 8 to 10 p.m., Phoenix Fiber Events will be hosting their weekly Open Mic Mondays at Smooth Brew Coffee, which is at 504 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. If you're between 14 and 20 years old, Monday is also the last day to apply for the Phoenix Youth Arts and Cultural Council's March and April showcases. You can do that at their social media sites on Facebook as well as Instagram. The Instagram handle is PHX Youth Arts and Culture Council. Again, that's at PHX Youth Arts and Culture Council. On Facebook, it's at Young Artists of PHX. Again, on Facebook, that's Young Artists of PHX. On Tuesday, March 10th from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop in Room 101 of the Chandler Community Center, which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 8 to 11 p.m., Ken Kong will be hosting his The Underground Experience at La Flor de Calabaza at 705 North 1st Street, Suite 110 in Phoenix. Sign up to get on the mic starts at 8 p.m. On Wednesday, March 11th from 4 to 7.30 p.m., Austin Davis will be hosting his Spring Book Tour Poetry Workshop and Reading at the Mesa Public Library, which is at 64 East 1st Street in Mesa. From 5 to 10 p.m., Walt Richardson II will be hosting his Walk-In Wednesdays Open Mic Night at Tempe Center for the Arts, which is at 700 West Rio Salado Parkway in Tempe. As always, from 5 to 6, youth artists will go on. From 6 to 10, all other artists will go on. Signing up for the first part starts at 4.45 p.m. Signing up for the second part starts at 5 p.m. On Thursday, March 12th, from 6 to 9 p.m., 
Fatso's Pizza will be hosting its weekly open mic night at 3131 East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., Mesa Arts Center will be hosting their monthly Wordplay Cafe open mic at the Nile, which is at 105 West Main Street in Mesa. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30. From 9.45 p.m., Atlas St. Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner, which is at 929 East Pierce Street in Phoenix. On Friday, March 13th from 7 to 9 p.m., Flipside will be hosting his Confessions Poetry Open Mic at the Concierge Bistro Bar at 1140 East Washington Street, Suite 101 in Phoenix. On Saturday, March 14th from 6 to 8 p.m., Transqueer Pueblo will be hosting their Creatures of Our Dreams Solidarity Writing Workshop for POC and Queer and Trans POC at Palagos Bilingual Bookstore, which is at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 6.30 to 10.30 p.m., Sozo Coffeehouse will be hosting its open mic night at 1982 North Almasco Road in Chandler. On Sunday, March 15th, from 2.30 to 5 p.m., Poets and Muses past poet guests Denai Barnes and Shannon Phillips will be hosting their Universal Love 2.0, a night of love for local artists at the Scottsdale Center for the Performing Arts, which is at 7380 East 2nd Street in Scottsdale. From 7.30 to 9 p.m., Home-Based Poetry will be hosting their Play It Forward open mic at the American Legion Travis L. Williams Post 65, which is at 1624 East Broadway Road in Phoenix. And now let us turn to our Poet Guest of the Week, Al Fournier. Hi, Al. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, Imogen. Great to be here. Wonderful. I'm glad you're here. So you are going to read for us your poem, Reaped. Reaped. <laughs> but before we do that, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? I was born in Michigan, Detroit. Mm-hmm. I've been living in Phoenix area for about 15 years now. Mm-hmm. Came out here for a job. I work for University of Arizona. I'm an entomologist. So I work out at a research farm, which is in Maricopa, city of Maricopa. Huh. But I live now in Ahwatukee. I'm not crazy about the desert, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I will say that I'm glad to be here in the sense of it's a great job and I've started to plug into the literary community here, which, as you know, is just very welcoming and, yes. and, and very encouraging. And yeah. It's exciting to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. come from a large family. I write a lot about my family yes. in, in my yes, poetry. So I have seven siblings. Good Lord. Yeah. Did not know that. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of uh, good material there. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's one of my t- turn-to topics a lot of times. What happened with me, I started going out. I'd been writing poetry for a long time, and very nervously, you know, I wanted to go out and find out more about maybe sharing it. So I went to an open mic, and it was Connecting Heels open mic, when they mm-hmm. used to be at the Talibu coffee shop, which is uh, in Chandler. That was a really good move, because it was such an encouraging environment, uh-huh, yes. and I got to hear a lot of other poets and 
you know, then I started going out to the poetry slams and other things, and it's just a vibrant community. I got involved. Connect and Heal is a nonprofit organization, mm -hmm. and their focus really is just about the power of writing to help mm -hmm. people heal. Mm -hmm. And her niece started the organization because she had a friend whose teenage daughter, I think, was killed in a car accident, and yeah. it grew from there. And she works a lot with youth out in the high schools and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then I run the workshop. We used to do an open mic. We're not doing the Sunday open mic anymore. Which makes me so sad. I organize a Tuesday night workshop mm -hmm. in Chandler. Mm -hmm. We meet at the Chandler Community Center. And it's every Tuesday night. You probably announce it all the time, right? Yes, I do. Uh, every yeah. week. So everybody knows about it. Just encourage people. I hope so. yes. If you're in the East Valley or if you haven't checked it out to come out, it's a good environment for beginners in particular, mm -hmm. but really anybody who's interested can come out, share work. These are writing workshops, so we write from prompts every single time. Cool. Uh, different mm -hmm. people will have ideas and just take the leadership of it. So it's a nice. lot of fun. Very nice. Going back to your poetry, how did you come to write poetry? I started writing around high school, I think maybe the summer before high school. I think it was an outlet for me. My mother died when I was 12, so it was a way to deal with those feelings, right. you know, I think. So that's kind of where it came from. I took English literature and poetry and American mm -hmm. literature, all those classes in high school. As soon as I could, I think it was my sophomore year, I was starting to take all that stuff, mm -hmm. and I just loved it. So that's when I started to get familiar with some of the poets, mm -hmm. some of the classical poets, all the way up through the 20th century. Mm. <laughs> I fell in love with Alexander Pope. We had to write a mock epic in my English Lit class, which mm. was a lot of fun. I was swept away by E.E. E. Cummings in high school poetry, mm -hmm. so it became a, a lifelong love of poetry after that. Great. So you were around 14? Yeah, when I started writing, I was probably 13 or something. Okay. You read for us some of the poems about your mom, and they were really amazing. Yeah, I've written a lot about her, and I've written some from her point of view, you know, mm. which was really important to me. And I did this for the last few years as an mm. adult, but I think it was important for me to better understand what she must have been going through. She died of breast cancer. Mm. Yeah. I think the very first poem I heard from you was one of the ones that you... I think it was the one with the green dress. You know, <laughs> this is this is amazing because it's not to brag, but that poem just got accepted today, and That's I've been great. I've been submitting poetry and I've been submitting that one. So I had quite a few rejections of it, and mm. it just got accepted. It's going to be published in a journal called Plain Songs in January. That's and great. I was about to give up on it, to be honest with you, because I had quite a few uh, refusals of that particular poem. So I was like, yeah, maybe I got to put it away and maybe edit it some more. And then I got that email this morning. So I was excited about that. I'm so glad it got accepted because it was just wonderful. I remember hearing it. I think you had it memorized. I think it might have been changing hands. Correct? Yeah. So the first line in that one was, mother died and then wore green. Mm. So, you know, yeah. in my imagination, at least, she was buried in a, in a green dress. Mm. It was a very powerful poem, so I'm just so glad it's coming out. Yeah, I, I'm excited because I, yeah. I was getting a little discouraged with that one, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I guess what I've been learning about it is that if anyone's interested in submitting their work, I would encourage everyone. There are so many different outlets for it, and it's just a matter of finding the right place. So you have to be able to deal with the rejections and just kind of slough them off, and yeah. most places will accept multiple submissions. So I'll mm-hmm. send it to five, six, seven, eight, ten places at once, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you'll have to withdraw it You know, if it gets accepted somewhere. Right. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of work, and it's a little bit of managing of information. But yeah. in the end, you know, you get your work out to a broader audience. So I think it's worth it. True, true. I think for people who are interested in getting it out into the world through more traditional means. Also, I, I was wondering in terms of these submissions, are these ones that have a submission or reading fee? Or are these the free ones? It varies. I mean, I submit to both. If okay. What I try to judge based on looking at what's available, like, if it's an online journal and it's open access, then you can see exactly what kind of stuff they're publishing. Right. If I think that's a good fit, mm-hmm. I would submit there whether there was a fee or not. The fees, mm-hmm. a high fee would be like $5. It's usually between 3 and $5 if there's a fee, but many of them don't have fees. Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. people I know will only submit to the ones that don't have fees. And in fact, what's interesting is many of the higher end journals, mm-hmm. the really you know tougher to get into ones, don't have fees. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's a matter of personal preference. I mean, I'm fortunate that a $5 fee is not going to stop me. And it's not $5 per poem. I mean, most places will accept, you know, three to five poems or even six or something. You know, they'll, right. they'll have their limit. So if I've got enough work that I think seems appropriate, I'll just max out. And you max out your chances they'll accept something in the batch, you know. Right. Yeah, definitely send in as many as they will let you. <laughs> so. Yeah, I usually do. But how do you manage your time, though? I mean, it's a lot, too. It's, it's really a life of its own, right? Because you have to really investigate whether or not the journal is an appropriate fit. It was really overwhelming at first. Two things I want to say. First of all, this is important. I would have never started doing this, but I took a workshop with Cynthia Schwartzberg-Edlow that was specifically, it was a two-part workshop at Changing Hands. It was specifically how to prepare your poetry manuscripts, you know, how to submit... Mm-hmm. And she provided lots of handouts and information about, you know, getting on submittable and, you know, the different places you can find open Mm -hmm. calls for submission. It was super encouraging. And at that workshop, there were some more experienced poets who had already been submitting work, Mm -hmm. um, made some friends who have more experience and that helps, right? Mm -hmm. So if I have a question, I'm not sure how to do something. That was last November. And I've been pretty encouraged by the results. Now I have four that have been published and three more that have been accepted nice. pending. So um, I'm kind of trying to keep it going. Yeah. But if I, you know, get enough where I can put out a book, you know, of, mm-hmm. of putting together a book, it kind of boggles my mind. I don't have a, any vision for it yet or anything. Mm-hmm. I kind of just like deal with each individual poem. Right. So that's something I think in the future I'll have to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Because as you said, it can be very overwhelming, you know, all the investigating time it takes to read all these works which I mean you want to obviously and it's good for as a poet as somebody who's creating your own work you want to draw inspiration from different places and so it's good to read anyway but at the same time when everybody tend to have a job besides writing poetry yeah I have a job (laughs) I understand I have a job I have a daughter so I had to make time in my life to do it what I do is I get up early before my wife or daughter get up and I write I do that on a daily basis if I'm lucky I get an hour in so it's not a lot but it helps you know to be putting something on paper every day just kind of keeps the juices going the submitting process is more of a business transaction 
It's mm -hmm. not creative work. It's more organizing. I'd liken it to some of the things I do in my regular job. So in mm -hmm. that sense, I think I already developed some of the needed skills to right, do that. So, right. so that's Categorization. Good. And then as far as getting familiar with the journals, sometimes, whether it's a website you know, or whatever. I'm not going to buy every journal. I'm going to, you know, or get a, get a hard copy of everything I think I might ever, you know, want to submit to. You'd be broke in a hurry. Yes. So it's good to have friends and share, right? right. So I have a few subscriptions. I know you interviewed Amon Dario and mm -hmm. we'll trade books all the time oh, and then look at stuff online. Yeah. And sometimes you can tell right away, oh, this is not at all similar to the kinds of things I'm writing and right. you just cross it off the list. So right. sometimes you don't have to invest much time at all. Right. But then the ones that you like, it's what you said, you get inspired. I read some of these really good journals mm -hmm. and it's what I aspire to. It's, I would love to be in there, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm still working on my craft. There's some really good ones. The Southern Poetry Review, mm -hmm. I really like. Bowshares is a really good one. Tin House. Mm. which just stopped doing the print version. I think they're going to be all online now. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you find the ones you like, you know, mm -hmm, and then you mm -hmm. read them. It's like every poem is good. And then that inspires you to write something sometimes. Right. Yeah. I feel the same way whenever I go to these open mics because I spend more time doing that now. A lot of times I come uh, away from these events and I'm like, oh, my God, I have to write something. Yes. And I, I should say, too, because the poetry slams and the open mics, I really love that as well. And it is inspiring. I'll often come home from one of those and just you feel like the wheels are turning, you know, yeah, yeah. and that's great. I started to dip my toe in that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I did compete in a couple of slams that were in the city of Maricopa. Mm -hmm. And I think I get too much anxiety in the performance part. And mm -hmm. I feel like I can only really connect with the audience if I memorize it. And for me, that's a very significant time investment. It is. And my time is so precious. And at least right now, for right now, I... I'm spending that time writing and editing. And I think that's one of the things that's similar to submitting to journals. You kind of have to understand your limits because poets are not necessarily performers. There are performance poets, but that's a niche in itself. Absolutely. I mean, it, it takes the writing skill for sure, but mm -hmm. it also takes a performance skill that maybe yeah. poets of the page don't necessarily have. No, no, yeah. It's, it's totally two different animals. Yeah. Uh, we're on a spectrum. As with a lot of things, you know, some poets are like introverts, they write in their own little dark corner of the world somewhere. And some other ones are ones who just like shout it out the windows and they want to do that. And I think it's good that we have so many different venues that caters to so many different people. I agree. And I'm, I'm inspired by both ends of the spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of the things I write are more toward the spoken word end. Right. You know, it may come another time when I'm a little more willing to invest the energy that I need. For some people, it comes naturally, the performance yeah. part. You know, I don't feel like my head is completely in one camp or another. It's just mm -hmm. where my energy is focused at the moment. Yeah, yeah. You do have a lot on your plate. How old is your daughter? She's eight. Yeah, maybe another eight years or five years when she doesn't want to associate with you by her teenage time, <laughs> then you you have uh, maybe a little yeah. more time on your hands. <laughs> yeah, you're breaking my heart, but yeah, Sorry. It's, it's probably true. <laughs> just, just, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's always a balancing act, that's for sure. You know. <laughs> yeah, it is. Anyway, we should probably give the audience a taste of your poetry. Okay. So if you would read that for us, reaped. Reaped. A harvest of unwanted children, rustling corn leaves, dry with Alabama dust. 
songless and ravaged, forced into being, weakly lean in blackbird wind. Somewhere a bloated fish of a man grins, his unwelcomed white seed swims. Thank you. Now, because I get to see the written version of this poem, I see that it has some visual aspects to it. I don't know if the rest of your poems, because I don't think I've seen many of your poems on paper. Are you now playing more with visual aspects of poetry, or is this something you've always done? I'm going to be straight out with you. I think the visual aspect you're probably talking about is some extra spacing mm -hmm. within a couple of the lines here. Yeah. And there's a complete lack of punctuation in this poem, which mm -hmm. isn't uncommon in poetry. But what I would say about it is, to be very honest with you, my style in this poem is influenced by Herman Dario. Yes. And maybe this, looking at this made you think of him, but you know, I think that I was playing around in terms of style, but I think when I wrote this, this was one of my wake up very early and sit down and just write. Mm. And it's very full of images because I think there's a time I don't hit it most days, but some days I get out of bed and I'm still a little bit in that in-between state. Mm -hmm. And I feel when that's the case, sometimes I have better access to imagery. Right. And so this kind of came out of that process. And the style of presentation, which I, I very much learned from Herman, it just lent itself to this. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Going to the content of this poem, can you tell us, um, I think this is relatively new, right? So I always note the date when I write things. Mm -hmm. So this is from May 19th of this year. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's pretty new. You're going to ask what it was in response to. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe most people heard about the law that was passed in Alabama, which basically said that you know women couldn't get an abortion in cases mm -hmm. of rape or incest. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I, I also think some of the things that were going on with migrant children in cages mm -hmm. and are probably still going on, yeah. uh, and those images that go along with that, you know, were sort of haunting me, you know, mm -hmm. when I was writing this poem. Mm -hmm. It's about this idea, I think, of being of being unwanted, you know, and then being forced mm -hmm. into being, you know, right. who cares for those children. Where do they end up? Right, you know, right. That's sort of a feeling. So I don't know. Sometimes things just get under my skin and then they'll come out. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same. And I just spoke with another poet. We had discussed overpopulation of the world. And it's kind of crazy to think about how children are being neglected after they've been born. The policies are not in place to take care of them. The policy is actually to, in some way, to say to mothers who are not well-to-do, now that we force you to have them, take care of them, <laughs> you know, yeah. by any means necessary. But we're not going to help you. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting to kind of revisit this poem because um, I read this before, and to read it again at this time when another state, I can't remember which one, uh, I feel like it might have been the Carolinas, that also just recently passed another, or struck from their abortion exceptions bills, the ability to obtain abortions in the case of incest and rape, which is so very restrictive, again, in, in the overall context of all the, the overpopulation. Right. 
many years ago, I'm thinking probably like the mid or late 1980s, people used to talk about overpopulation. Mm-hmm. You know, so nobody talks about it anymore. Which is crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> you know, there was this thing called ZPG, zero population growth. And I'm not advocating for any specific policy, but as a biologist, right, I mean, it, it really comes comes down to numbers and, and resources and everything else. And it just seems there should be some common sense. I say, you know, as the man from the family of eight. Well, you had no control over that. No, I didn't. And uh, my parents were Catholic, so, you know, they didn't uh, practice any limitations when it came to procreation. Well, they, they did follow Catholicism. Yeah, apparently yeah. they did. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of made me think of the meaning of life. Sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, there's a movie I've seen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, it kind of talks about the same thing. It has criticisms about the same thing, the, the, the dynamics between Irish and their British overlords. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, even though, obviously, uh, our government and our poorer population they're not of different countries but it sometimes feel that way that dynamic yeah no i know what you mean i think it comes across but i felt this a lot Mm -hmm. and um, i think you could find many takes on the same issue that were from the woman's perspective Mm -hmm. right and this isn't really that i mean i can't really speak to that but i just think about these kids you know yeah yeah and um, I don't know why, it just doesn't seem right. I just never would have expected a law like that to, to come into being. It, it just seems to go counter to so many things, right? I mean, it's a violation, Yeah. rape, incest. And it's almost like putting your stamp of approval on it, in a sense. You know, maybe that's an extreme statement. But it's to say that, you know, this potential life is more important than the crime that caused it to come into being. Right. And again, going back to the what happens afterwards. Yes. Because they don't care about that. Yeah. Which is so frustrating because if they had cared about that, if they would take care of the child for the rest of their life, or at least till they are able to survive on their own, at least that would make more rational sense, right? And, and I think that's why so many critics of these sort of legislations talk about the legislators' underlying desires to control women's bodies. Because they don't care after the child's body has been separated from the mother's body. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very strange contrast. You know, I know that it, the abortion issue is one that's very uh, intense mm-hmm. for people on both sides. And I feel as if they're almost not speaking the same language. The underlying values are so different that they can't comprehend each other's arguments. I actually feel like the underlying value is very similar, which is one of valuing life, but which life? That's sort of the difference. That's a good point. And again, it goes back to why do you value this life less than the other life? Why do you value less someone who is already in existence, who has a lot more to give society than a clump of cells at that point? At that point, yeah. And something that, as you said, your last line invokes is that even in the process of inseminating someone, you lose so many more possibilities of children because, like, I forget, every ejaculation is something like millions of sperms, is it? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. So if they truly value all these potentials, shouldn't they be going around, like, 
just collecting <laughs> sperm. Like, don't come, don't come. Come into this bucket, <laughs> you know? Like, so much of this sort of argument doesn't make that much sense when you look at it from different perspectives. But I don't know that it's being looked at from those perspectives. Yeah. Also, I think there's a sense in this poem, and maybe it doesn't come across, maybe it's just an underlying thought in my head, but that the children themselves, these unwanted children, mm-hmm. face a future of exploitation, Yeah. which sort of perpetuates the power dynamic in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's too profound, but I mean, in part, that's why I call it reaped. The original title was Harvest, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking of it very much like, you know, these children are just being harvested and used, and uh, I went with reaped, of course, because it sounds like raped, Mm. so I thought that was a better title. Yeah. You point to also the statistic that you might have read that these legislations, these restrictions, tend to affect women of color a lot more. Oh, yeah. And, of course, there's the school-to-prison pipeline. And a lot of prisons now, especially the privatized ones, they are using prison labor, like fighting fires in California, for instance, or a lot of prison labor. I didn't know that. That was used, yeah. Yeah. And um, making plates. I mean, supposedly to rehabilitate people, but really it's just underpay labor. And also throughout the country, there's the practice of stripping people the right to vote if they have gone to prison. I think Florida just abolished, finally, abolished that law, which is a good a good progress from coming out of Florida, no less. Yeah. So, so all of these things, all of these dynamics kind of feed into what you just said about perpetuating this dynamic of having low-wage labor, keeping this sort of economic and social structure. Yeah. It's frustrating. <laughs> This one is also published, or going to be, right? Yeah, this this was already published. This was the second poem that was accepted, but it was the first to be published. <laughs> cool. And um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but people who are interested in this conversation that we're having would be interested in the Newverse News. Check out the Newverse News online, and what they do is they publish one poem a day, mm. and it's always on a topic from the news. It could be any topic. It doesn't have to be political. So what happened was, you know, I wrote the poem on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. I took it to our Tuesday poetry workshop. I got feedback from Herman, and then I got feedback at the poetry workshop. I made a few changes to it. I submitted it on Thursday, and this never happens, right? But it was accepted within an hour. Nice. And it was published on Saturday. And I think the reason that happens is they're working in real quick time, right? Right, right. Because they need a poem a day. They want it to be topical. Right. You know, while the news story is, you know, well, that topic is still in the news cycle. Right. Right. So if you're writing something that's related to the news, that's a really good outlet. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend people to, to consider submitting that and just read it because you'll find it's really good. It's really interesting to read people responding to the news. And there are a few other publications, I think, that do that. That's the one I'm familiar with. Yeah, I think I've come across their uh, website before, Universe News. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's good that different poetry outlets show what poetry can do or how poetry can relate to every part of life. Because, you know, all the poets write from their perspective on life, and each one of us occupy a certain bit of life, right? So... I wanted to ask you about your last stanza, specifically where it talked about somewhere a bloated fish of a man grins, and then his unwelcome white sea swims. 
I mean, there's a reference to rape, of course, in that, but did you have a specific person in mind? or? No, not at all. Maybe, you know, as to color, but otherwise, no. Okay. It was just a way to make it real mm. through the imagery. And I don't know where the, again, it was like a dream thing. I don't know where that line came from. That just, it was there. Mm. Um, and um, I think it does, I mean, it, it's a powerful way to, yeah. to end it. But I wasn't thinking of a specific person. Okay. You know, anyone in the category of bloated pretty much fits. <laughs> yeah. It seems like there is a sort of a link on the placement of the poem, right? And, and also the sort of person that you might imagine occupying that space. Yes. I mean, I know what I see in my head. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a named person. It's not a specific person, but right, it's right. a type. Right, right, right. right. I, I feel like there are certain politicians that comes to mind... <laughs> You know, that, that fits that type as well. You know, somebody who's so privileged that. And I don't I don't just mean on the federal level, but, you know, on the local level as well. People who are so privileged, so out of touch with the reality of how these legislations will affect the everyday people, though they were supposed to be there to represent the people. Yeah. And there is that aspect. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So I chose my poem, Not Yet to read with yours, partly also because of this idea of unwanted birth, but this is more from the perspective of the child. Yeah. So I'll read that now and we can talk about it. Not yet. Tell me, daughter mine, what would you like for the future? Not to be born yet, mother, not to be born. I see too many fires in the eyes of men. I hear too many words of hate, the bones they don't break, hmm. I fear for all the heartaches. Tell me, daughter mine, what would you like for the future? Not to be born yet, father, not to be born. I know you want to be my hero, want me forever your little girl, but the world grows me up too quickly. I fear your heart will break. Tell me, sister mine, what would you like for the future? Not to be born yet, sister, not to be born. I've learned from your past I'm learning from your present. There's no protection, even from those who were present. Tell me, sister mine, what would you like for the future? Not to be born yet, brother, not to be born. Those whom you consider good guys are to my eyes monsters. Those words you think flattering are to me foreshadowing. I really like this poem a lot, and I agree with you. I think it's kind of a good matchup in a lot of ways. I was like immediately like emotionally touched by the poem and could relate to a lot of different aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think that I liked is it's this idea that, you know, children come into the world and they're ready for nothing but joy, you know? Mm-hmm. They're ready to give Mm. and to take everything in. Mm. And they deserve a world where that's a wonderful thing and there's a free exchange. Mm -hmm. And as we learn, as we grow up, and some people learn it younger than others, Mm. that there's a lot of hurt in the world and Mm -hmm. there are a lot of hurtful people Mm -hmm. and a lot of heartache. Mm. So how do you deal with that? You hear the expression, and I've heard it a lot, of people just want to crawl back in the womb. (laughs) 
but it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> but you know, the, I think the genius of your poem is it rewinds even further than that. Mm -hmm. It says, "To have not been born, not to be born yet." Mm -hmm. You know, so wow. I mean, that's quite a statement. It's very, very sad. It's very tragic, yeah. and it reminded me of a lot of things. I'll tell you a little story that it reminded me of, if I can. Sure. When I was about maybe 12 or something, I remember thinking, you know, I'm a young adult, and what do adults do? They read the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So I took it on myself. I said, I'm going to read the newspaper mm -hmm. like a regular adult would. And I remember reading this story, like I had probably only been looking at the newspaper for a couple of days, and I read a story and I hope my memory is right on it, but it was, uh, I believe it was called The Neutron Bomb. Mm. And what it was described as in this article was this was a new technology mm -hmm. that you could drop these bombs on a city and it would kill every living thing, but it would leave the buildings and the infrastructure intact. <laughs> which of course would enable, you know, an invading army or whatever to come in and take mm -hmm. over, mm -hmm. you know, without having to rebuild, you mm -hmm. know, which I don't know how much of my memory is accurate mm -hmm. about that, you know, down to the name of it as a neutron bomb. So somebody can fact check me on it. But I just remember <laughs> the way I felt when I read that, mm -hmm. because it was so utterly shocking to me mm -hmm. that anyone would devise such a thing. You know, I couldn't understand it. And uh, I, I feel like, for me, that was like this moment of disillusionment. Mm -hmm. Now, there were other things that happened, other things that hurt me. You know, my mother had been sick. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure she had even died before that happened. But mm -hmm. this was like a recognition mm -hmm. of the evil that humans are capable of, you mm -hmm. know, in the form of this particular technology just just yeah. to conceive it so yeah not to have been born yet you know um, that's so it's it's really sad but it's very very relatable yeah i wish the times was such that i didn't feel inspired to write this poem yeah but yeah i just feel like you know as a former girl child having experienced the things I have. And also this was right around the time of the Kavanaugh hearings. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And though, you know, you might have personal experiences of assault or, or trauma uh, related to sexual predatory behavior. But I felt like sort of like your moment when you were 12 reading this uh, about a neutron bomb, which had to be funded by the government, you know, a very, very kind of formalized process to get to that level of evil and on top of that the extra evil that it takes to say we're going to kill the people but leave the infrastructure so we yeah. can just move in yeah right that that extra bit of putting salt on the wound as it were yeah, yeah. right the kavanaugh hearing kind of did that yeah because it was formalized it was it was i was glued i was watching those hearings with everybody else i mean yeah. if i wasn't in the midst of work and you know maybe for a little while i had it on the corner of my screen at work, but you know it was can't look away you know because yeah. i think everyone at least a lot of people that i converse with very invested in the mm -hmm. outcome of this yeah both sides yeah
And because of that, because you can say to yourself, okay, I'm an individual. Sometimes, as an individual, you have a run of bad luck because you know there's no protection against random bad people. But to know that the infrastructure you thought you could count on, including the principles of a country. Suddenly, it's being kind of clobbered by this formalized process that's playing out on TV, and you realize these people that you might have elected or you invested a belief in to protect you will not uphold the process. Yeah, and you remember when this was going on, there were a lot of leads that、yeah. should have been followed up on that were just shut down. Yeah, and even recently there was more renewal. Uh, leads of people who again、uh, they refuse to come forward, and we don't know whether or not they refuse to come forward because of their political belief, whatever their beliefs, whether or not because they seen the circus playing and just thought, why should I let myself get trampled again by this? So it was just so frustrating. It just I just felt so let down that I just thought, oh God. And there's that concept of people choosing their lives or spirits choosing their lives before they are born to choose what kind of life to come into. So I kind of just decided to write from that perspective. Choosing what life to come into, yeah. There's a lot in here, and it is personal,、mm. right? I mean, I, I I wouldn't have seen the Kavanaugh connection in this, but think of it. I mean, it's about family, and it's、mm-hmm. in a sense, it's about each of those aspects of each of those relationships、mm-hmm. and those interactions.、Yeah. So, you know, as a father of a young daughter, of course, you know, the fourth stanza speaks to me a lot.、Um, mm-hmm. I know you want to be my hero, want me forever, your little girl, but the world grows me up too quickly. I fear your heart will break. What's interesting is I'm always thinking of the inverse of that. Of that. Right. I mean, I'm always thinking about my daughter having to face pain,、mm-hmm. and、um, how you you really are helpless to prevent it. You know,、mm-hmm. I mean, there are things you do, you know, to try to keep kids safe, but it's not entirely in your control. No. And even if it's just a matter of having her heartbroken, you know, when she's twelve or thirteen or whatever the、right. first time, and、right. having to face that,、yeah. even if it's completely innocent, yeah, you still want to protect them. And what I love about your poem is it opened my eyes to the perspective of the daughter. You know, the speaker、mm-hmm. in the poem, of course. Wants to protect the father's feelings, which、yeah. makes in, entirely makes sense.、Yeah. But it wasn't a perspective I had thought about,、mm. you know.、Mm. So that was really touching. And I think that came from. I think it's a movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if it's a movie or something real because there are just like so many of these things happening over the past year. Not so much they didn't happen before, but they were so much more highlighted. In the media, that sometimes I'm I'm kind of mixing it. I I, I remember there was a daughter. I, again, I don't know if this is fictional or factual. Not wanting to tell her father about her rape because she thought he would kill the person. I think I'm pretty sure it's fictional. You know, obviously it comes from a writer's experience. Whether or not that's purely imagined or. Come from real life experience. I don't know. It doesn't matter, yeah. right? Yeah. Because it's a real feeling. You can immediately relate to it. Yeah. Right, and that's kind of the other side of it. 
Yeah. I love the structure of your poem a lot. I, I, I like structured poetry more than is like popular today, I think, in a lot of places. It creates this perfect frame for what you want to say. And, you know, the repetition of it just really emphasizes to me. It's very song-like, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it has a little bit that lyrical quality. And ironically that you say you like the structure because I don't tend to write structured poetry. Yeah, poetry. yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I thought about that too. When you sent it to me and I first saw it, I, I was a little surprised. I'll tell you what it reminded me of. I have to reveal, you know, I'm a, I'm a Dylan fanatic. Mm. And it reminded me, the structure of it, just the structure of it, reminded me of the song Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall. Oh, um, yeah. I listened to that recently. Yeah, and the opening of each stanza is, Where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Mm-hmm. Or what have you seen, my blue-eyed son? And so yeah. on. And then using that as a, a launching point for everything yeah. else in the song. I don't remember where I heard it, but I, I understand that he, he adopted that method and possibly even those exact lines, those leading lines of mm-hmm. the stanzas from an old English ballad. Oh, okay. Yeah. He borrows a lot. Yeah, there, there is that quality, like you said, that lyrical quality to it. I forget what, because it was written, my God, a year ago now. <laughs> Time passes. It does. <laughs> Too quickly. <laughs> I honestly can't remember what made me, other than the, the Kavanaugh hearings, made me decide to write this particular poem the way I did. I have some other poems that I wrote at around the same time that tackles similar subjects, but in different ways. Yeah. So I think this is the only one that I wrote from a pre-born child's perspective. Yeah. It's really interesting. I like it a lot. I guess I, I thought of it more in terms of of talking about the aspects of it than targeting you with specific questions. But I guess what I what I would say is, you know, you said it was inspired by the Kavanaugh hearings, but there's a lot of really personal things in this poem, I think. And going through the mother, the father, the two siblings, mm-hmm. were you thinking of specific aspects of your past or things that happened or or is this even your voice at all? You know? No, no, it's purely imagined, and the family is a nuclear family. It's one of those imagined a bit of Americana kind of thing. Yeah. This is one of two poems I wrote almost back to back, where it has that very Americana feeling to it, but completely deconstructing it and coming at it from a totally different perspective. So I wanted to have that. Some of these are sort of stereotypical aspects, sort of Americanas that I I want. In some ways, a lot of what I try to do with my writing is to challenge the thinking, challenge traditional thinking. This sort of white picket fence, you know, nuclear family, Mm -hmm. two and a half children with a dog. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. There's no dog. The dog doesn't get to ask the question. Yeah. I think that would just venture into the silly. That would. That would. (laughs) It's a good thing you stopped. Well, that's an interesting aspect of it that I saw. I thought about it, not in a white picket fence aspect, but just in the aspect of going all the way around the family circle. Mm -hmm. You know? And again, with the structure that you have, here it just fits so well 
and your last word foreshadowing mm -hmm. it goes right back to the heart of it you know the yeah. not yet you yeah. know yeah. kind of thing so it gives me chills i think it's it's really cool poem thank you you should submit this one somewhere yeah when i, I don't I'm, know where offhand but like when i wrote it, i was just like weird <laughs> it's very different from the poems i tend to write which tends to be much more stream of consciousness so i guess my conscious was kind of structured that day yeah <laughs> well it fits the poem so well it really does it would be a different poem if, if it was written in a different way yeah yeah true i have one from let's say the brother's perspective an entire separate poem yeah yeah and again, you know, it's sort of like I can, I can, like seeing it, not remember how I was seeing it before, but seeing it now, and I'm almost doing an interpretation of my own reading. I mean, the talking about the white picket fence, nuclear family, and whatnot. But you could sort of see that this brother, who's very well-meaning, obviously, and, uh, would probably be a very loving, protective older brother in, in all respects. You know, completely having this blind spot or that she's pointing out this blind spot mm -hmm. that he might have. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because, again, as a woman, and I've even seen this myself, I've, I've had conversations with guys who have a completely different perspective of someone that you had horrible experiences with. Yeah. Because they don't have that perspective. They don't need to think about that. They're not vulnerable to that. Right. You know, whereas as a woman, you kind of are being forced to see that aspect of that person. Yeah. And and that kind of feeds back to the Me Too movement as well and the Kavanaugh hearing is that all of these people who came to his defense, right, they saw a certain perspective. And they're not wrong in what they saw because they don't have to see the other side. Yeah, that's a really good point. And... It's true, so many of survivors, is that, you know, sometimes I question whether or not somebody is a real predator in terms of, do they target? Is the targeting conscious or unconscious? Because when we're dating, we always have to think about how we fit in terms of this person that we met, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you're one of those people who are not just like throwing everything at the wall kind of person, because there are those people as well. <laughs> So then when it comes to predation, when does it become conscious? I, I don't know the answer. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> think most of us know, right? Even if we were to like dissect into somebody's brain, we still wouldn't know because we can't tell from the structure what's going on. It's not a structural fault. There's no link between, let's say, psychological aspect with the physical aspect. Right. Well, and the other thing is they fall into a pattern of behavior you know the brain sort of wires itself a certain way right yeah. i'm not i'm not saying this is an excuse but it may be like not as conscious as it could be right that's what i'm saying is you know i think we're making the same point from different ways is that you know even in dating we do certain things like dating that's not out of bounds Right. So we do try to fit. We do try to target. So how much of that is already hardwired? I see what you're saying, yeah. And then just misused in a way. 
or yeah. quite the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, different people will have different preferences. Some of those preferences are just not okay. You know, when you're talking about something like something egregious like pedophilia, because that that's a, like a more obvious example. Some people will even use chemical castration to try to keep themselves in line, but it doesn't work for some reason. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there are people who recognize it as a wrong and they don't want to do it, but it's almost an obsessive behavior. At the same time, there are people who indulge in it, like a Jeffrey Epstein, and tries to excuse it away because the underage girls that he prefer have already, you know, started to experience puberty. And and I have no idea what the point. <laughs> well, <laughs> just I, I don't know. I guess you started with the idea that not everybody, well, an interaction between somebody who's more of a predator and a woman is different than the way he interacts with the men and this inability to maybe sometimes recognize that and then the sort of the brain behavior right is it conscious is it chosen you know yeah. but I think, I think you have to I, I, I don't know if we want to wander into morality but I mean ultimately like we're each on this planet mm. for a while yeah right so, which is both shorter than we think it will be and longer than we think. I, it will I be. totally agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> it is. So, if yeah, <laughs> I was listening to a lecture this morning that was about Kant and it was about how morality, in Kant's view, in one of his treatises, it's based on the very concept of freedom. There's mm-hmm. no morality if you don't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. So if some of the things you're saying are true or things are hardwired and people can't control the behavior, then it's not a moral choice. Mm. On the other hand, I think that freedom and morality gives us great power, right, to to decide and, you know, to make some kind of statement with your life, right? Yeah, and a lot of responsibility as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And everybody missteps, you know, even the best yeah. of them. Yeah. So, I don't know. You know, one of the most interesting things to me is how do you think of life? Is life a moral dilemma? Is life uh, a party? Is life uh, a question, a puzzle to be answered? You know, I once made a list mm-hmm. and I can't remember all the things on it. There's like a whole page of mm-hmm. all these possible answers to that question. And maybe how you answer that question says a lot about how you want to experience life. Mm-hmm. And understanding that everyone doesn't doesn't believe or choose to experience life in the same way as everyone else is pretty important. Yeah. You know, because well, otherwise, you know, you're judging everyone by your playbook. You right. Know? And. Um, but I think that's the problem is that most people don't understand that. Most people basically think this is my perspective on life, and that's it's actually what everybody else's perspective is on life. Well, maybe it's an advantage of having many siblings, but I experienced from a young age that the people around me had different experiences and different approaches to life. Mm, yeah. So I think I learned that lesson early. Yeah. And it still haunts me. I mean, I still think about it a lot, and it's a, something I'm mining a lot in my writing, some of the differences between myself and, and my one of my older brothers, mm-hmm. because it's hard for us to comprehend each other. Because mm-hmm. we're that different. Yeah. I think it's good to have that perspective. Too many people don't. Again, it's sort of like going back to my example. 
are, are you forced to confront something and does that make your world view wider? I mean, it sounds like you having these siblings, especially ones that you might not get along with or that you, you don't see eye to eye on certain subjects with, those are the ones that actually open up your worldview more. Yeah, so I had the pleasure of seeing Sam Sachs when he came. Mm-hmm. He did a reading. If you don't know, Sam Sachs is, uh, is a gay Jewish man, a poet. He's super funny. A lot of his poetry is both funny and like cuttingly, tragically devastating at the same time. Mm-hmm. He's a brilliant poet. And he said something about that. He said that there are people who won't approach poetry or literature that's not in, doesn't share their worldview, mm-hmm. but they're really missing out mm-hmm. because, I mean, my world has expanded enormously through reading and you know going to poetry slams and finding out about other people's perspectives and experiences. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like if people would open up more that the world would be a much more harmonious place, right? Mm-hmm. I get to experience some aspect of being a gay Jewish man or whatever it is, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying, from reading that perspective, uh, yeah. something that, that is, is outside of my experience but have access to it. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you want to, you know, have access to that? Why wouldn't you want to, like, reach out and just you know, learn about these other things. I don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm a learning fanatic, so. Yeah. But yeah. I feel life is so limited otherwise. Yeah. But it's also for people who prefer the safety of familiarity. Yes. That it makes sense. You can sort of understand from their perspective why they win. Because then there's so much to deal with. You know, if you're sensitive at all to that, then it becomes sort of this very mentally jarring experience. Right. Well, there's limits, right? Like, I don't want to go into the mind of a serial killer or something (laughs) like that. But I think that because humans invented writing, Mm -hmm. I learned that it was independently invented something like six or eight times or something on the planet, right? If you study that. So it's like an innately human thing to be able to write and record Mm -hmm things and but because people have invented writing we have access to so much i mean it's it's the foundation of technology it's the foundation of you know everything you know our our organized societies Mm. so for better or worse but you have access to other ways of living other ways of experiencing life and i think that's an amazing gift yeah and especially now in digital age you have access at your own leisure rather than in the more formalized uh, or where only formalized education was the more accessible way of learning. Yeah, that's a good point, where the controlled curriculum, you know, is uh, handed down. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's really exploded. I mean, everything everything is out there. Yeah, but, you know, it's, it's always a matter of reliability of the source. There's, that's true. Yeah. There's a lot of bad information out there for sure. Yeah. But anyway, we're not here to discuss that because that's a can of worms we don't want to open right now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wanted to find out, A, where do you read? And B, where, how can people follow you? Well, 
called Tackle B First Apologies to the Universe. I'm not on social media. Oh, my God. So at the moment, I don't know if there's a way to follow me, but I do expect to go out to some more open readings now that our Connect and Heal is, isn't doing the open reading on Sundays. So mm-hmm. you might find me at Mesa, District 4, Ooh. right? Jared's downtown. The other one I've sometimes gone to is um, Sozo's, yeah. which is in Chandler. Yeah, I want to go. It's too far for fun. Yeah. So, but again, I'm not really doing that a lot. But if mm-hmm. I if I do go out and read, those are probably the places. Eventually, though, I do plan to get a web page together mm-hmm. that will have links out to mm-hmm. some of my poetry, or I'll post some of the poems that have been published. But you know, I don't really have that skill set. So, and I feel like I don't, I don't have much, that much out there yet anyway, so mm-hmm. it may not be right away. Right, right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Be sure to check out the links to topics that we talked about during this episode in the episode notes. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.